Why now? Why have a rash of fatalities at Santa Anita this year become such front-page news that they threaten the very existence of the sport? Haven't there been other such spikes in the past? We'll examine what's different in media today that's led to such attention. Plus, one of the reasons for the fatalities themselves is the relative fragility of the American thoroughbred compared with others around the world. In Japan, racehorses are bred for sturdiness. We'll delve into the mindset of the Japanese breeder and how it differs from the American and European views. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you might not even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Ralph Branca of the Brooklyn Dodgers became famous for surrendering a playoff-ending home run in 1951. Dennis Eckersley served up an equally legendary home run in the 1988 World Series. But it's probably not the first thing you think of when his name is mentioned. What is the difference between the two? What determines what becomes front-page news and what doesn't? Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that 30 horses died at Santa Anita from the start of their meet in late December through the end of the meet in late June. The firestorm that is created in the media has threatened the very existence of the sport. But Professor Paul von Hippel, who has been a guest on this show earlier this year, pointed out in an article at Thoroughbred Racing Commentary that if you look at the entire year from last July through this June— It actually was one of Santa Anita's safest years. Yes, Santa Anita's 2.2 deaths per thousand starts is above the national rate of 1.7, but the 12-month total of 40 is only one more than the previous year, and 30% lower than the 2017-18 season. Now, don't get me wrong. One death is too many. But the point here is that the number the previous season did not elicit all of the hand-wringing and controversy we've seen this year. And that does not even factor in other spikes at other tracks in the recent past. Aqueduct Racetrack in New York had 21 fatalities in the winter of 2017. That got some attention, but not like what we've seen in California this year. Now, obviously, the situation in California and everywhere else has to be worked out by horsemen on the track in conjunction with racing administrators, But another part of the equation is how the message is handled and disseminated. So what we want to do here is give you a primer of sorts on the changing media landscape and what determines which messages become front-page news, how, and why. To help do that, we welcome in journalism professor Damian Radcliffe from the University of Oregon. He not only teaches and continues to work in the business, but he's organized a speaking series called Demystifying Media. Boy, could we use some of that. So welcome, Professor Radcliffe. Let's get right to it. We said earlier that the number of horses who lost their lives at Santa Anita this year is about the same as the number from 2017-18. But this year, 
the story has just blown up all over the media. What determines when certain stories that seem similar differ in the amount of coverage they get? That's a great question, and I don't think there's necessarily any one particular reason for these things. I mean, if you look in kind of like, say, the outside of the sporting world and look at what happened in Flint, Michigan, for example, you know, this was a story that was getting huge amounts of, of local coverage, but took a really long time to punch through on a national level. But then when it did, it, there's almost a domino effect where once one outlet of particular repute and size and impact starts to report on a story, then others will do the same. And so it's quite possible that something like that has happened in this space, or you get uh, an influencer, somebody on social media with a particular following who highlights a particular issue, and then that just snowballs and gathers its own momentum. And I think particularly in the kind of the social and digital era, when we see stories that kind of really punch through, often it's just you can trace that back to one particular person, one particular outlet, one particular news report that just resonates with an audience and then gathers a life of its own. You mentioned that word digital. I have heard and I've read, but though I work in the media, I don't fully understand that computer-generated news stories and curated news feeds on social media play a role in this as well. Now, before we go any further, please explain to our audience and to me what computer-generated news stories are. Sure. Well, that's that's a whole separate podcast on its own, but I'll try and give it to you in a sort of a 20, 30-second summary. So one of the things that we have started to see is the rise of automation and kind of automated reporting, robo-journalism, if you like, in a number of different newsrooms, particularly looking at content genres that often follow a formula. So sports is a good example of that, that we know there's been this race at this time, this location, this was the top three runners and riders and so forth, or the same with soccer, where because there's kind of a formula and a template that journalists often write to, that computers can essentially fill in the gaps within that template and create a story automatically. The most obvious, the most pronounced example of this is in financial reporting. When you look at quarterly results that come out from companies on Wall Street or the FTSE in London, they tend to follow a formula, these kind of earnings reports. And so the likes of the Associated Press, Bloomberg, Reuters and, and others have recognized that if a computer can write to this formula, essentially filling in the gaps of this template, then we can generate more stories by volume than if a human was writing these. So this is one of the, of the trends that we've seen with certain types of stories, not investigative reporting, not war reporting, kind of foreign desk work. There's a bunch of other stories that still require people to have a knowledge of that beat, to go out and interview sources and dissect and tell that story. But for material that follows the template, that's where we can see uh, computers filling in some of those gaps. And the interesting thing is that for readers, we can't tell the difference. I've highlighted examples of this in my classes with my students where I've given them two stories and said, one of these is written by a robot, one is written by a journalist, which is which? And they honestly cannot tell. Now, as a reader, sometimes you can tell because publishers will acknowledge that something has been written with assistance by a particular program, and that's right and proper that there should be this level of transparency. But without that, it would be very hard to tell. Now, how does a curated news feed on a social media site work? And there's a point to all of this in a moment. 
Yeah, so that's that's the difference. So what a lot of people don't realize is the extent to which algorithms shape the content that we see. So if you and I search for the same term on Google, for example, we would get completely different search results. Most people don't realize that. Similarly, if we're looking for a title on Netflix, in many cases, the image that I will get that uh, is used to help promote that show is different from the image that you will see. And the image will be chosen by an algorithm based on viewing history and therefore the, the likelihood based on our viewing history of the type of image which will resonate with me or with you or somebody else to make me click play. Same as kind of recommendation engines on Spotify or on Amazon or indeed using apps like Apple News. You know, Apple News, which is a tool that I use all the time, to read my news and get a sense of what's going on in the world, that will be unique to me based on my previous reading history and what the algorithm has determined I am interested in. And you know, that can be incredibly helpful for audiences uh, to have kind of uh, content served to you that meets your preferences. But I also think that can be dangerous too because what it does is removes serendipity. It removes introducing me to things that I don't know that I might like, or indeed that I need to see and be introduced to. So we saw good examples of that in the political spectrum over the last few years. You probably guess from my accent, I'm not originally from the States, I'm from the UK. When Brexit came around, I didn't see a single story on my Facebook feed from somebody who was pro- Brexit. And yet, if I look at the fact that I have 300 odd friends or so on Facebook, and these are all people I know, they can't all have been pro-Remain and pro-staying in the European Union like me. But because I was sharing stories saying, you know, we should vote to stay, uh, it would be a disaster for the country if we voted to leave, the algorithm just served me more of what it thought I wanted and what I liked. Whereas actually, What I like a lot of the time is to have my views challenged. I want you to be introduced to different points of view. And I think that that pushes my thinking into new places. And that's an important thing to do. The point to this is what role do computer generated stories and curated news feeds that we've just talked about play in determining the popularity of a story? Like whether the deaths at Santa Anita become national news or not. So I think they absolutely do play a role in that because they'll, they, these algorithms will determine a certain number of people are talking about this, someone you know is talking about it, somebody that you interact with on a regular basis, or they might identify that a certain number of people are talking about this and therefore this story is about to go viral. I mean, that's one of the things that's very interesting in, in a lot of newsrooms is using these tools for preemptive means, trying to ascertain, well, what's the story that's going to go be in the next two or three hours? How do I get ahead of a jump on my competitors? How do I get ahead ahead of the curve? And using those kind of predictive algorithms to ascertain that based on who is talking about it, the kind of momentum it is starting to get, and then covering it. And of course, arguably, to some extent, then these things become a self-fulfilling prophecy that if a story that's not necessarily getting huge amounts of traction but is predicted to, then gets that laser focus from a major journalist or a major news outlet, then it will indeed be more likely to blow up. Are you starting to see where we're going with this? We're chatting here on In the Gate with University of Oregon journalism professor Damian Radcliffe. In our open, we presented a bit of a nuanced view at the numbers involving deaths at Santa Anita. On the one hand, the numbers are down 30% from two years ago and very similar to the past year. On the other hand, 
Santa Anita is also above the national average in terms of deaths per thousand starts. This is a somewhat thoughtful reflection of the situation. But do you think, Professor, that social media and the presumably short attention span of the average reader or viewer have contributed to their ingesting a less nuanced view of any story? Sadly, I think that's true. I think that there is plenty of evidence to suggest that our attention spans have become shorter, that we consume arguably more content from more sources than we ever have done, but we don't necessarily go as in-depth with that. As a journalist, if you ever look at the data that can be generated about how much time people have spent on a story that you have written, often those numbers are enough to make you weep. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you write a, you might spend four hours on a story and discover the average viewer of that took 20 seconds. So essentially, all they have done is skim through the key points that you have highlighted, and then they've moved on to something else. Yeah, I've lovingly crafted every word and in many cases wanted to show that there is nuance here and that we don't live in a black and white world. It's incredibly gray in many cases. And I think because of the the speed with which we access and consume content, our desire and willingness to always just move on to the next thing, that often these kind of more complicated pieces can be lost. So that's definitely a factor. But I think at the same time, you know, there are also some some positives here. I mean, we've... Good. I need some. Please give me a positive. (laughs) I'll give you some positives. So, So some people will argue, for example, that the social media age has essentially killed long form journalism and long form storytelling. And I think in some cases there's, a, there's an argument for that, but I think you can also argue that this is just encouraging us to find ways of telling stories in different ways. So podcasts for me is a great example of that. If you listen to a series like Serial or any number of other shows that run you know, week to week over multiple episodes, that is long form storytelling. If you release that in one go, nobody would listen to an eight hour true crime podcast in, in one sitting. Uh, but would they listen to 16, 30 minute episodes? Absolutely they will. Same thing with, with content that's released on more video orientated channels like Snapchat, for example, you know, Vice, the kind of millennial oriented news organization, they realized that a lot of the time if they sliced and diced their videos into 30 second pieces, people would watch 10 30 second videos who might not click play on a five minute video. So it's a way almost of kind of lulling the, the reader, the listener, the viewer into consuming content that hooks them, grabs their attention and then then keeps it without putting them off in the first instance by kind of seeing the potential length of that piece. That actually they start and once they get into it, they realize this is super interesting and I want to know more. And so they continue on that journey. So I think one of the challenges for us as journalists is recognizing that actually there is still a demand from audiences to consume content in depth, but we have to find interesting, creative, innovative ways to serve that to audiences. And sometimes that's essentially offering long form by stealth. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that <laughs> what that means is we're just being creative in the process. Let's say, Professor Radcliffe, let's say you are an organization that is adversely affected by the spread of this message, for example, the rash of fatalities at Santa Anita, and you want to not necessarily control the message, but keep the message on more of an even keel so that it does not create hysteria. 
What kinds of things can you do to that effect? Well, I think what's really interesting there is just thinking about ways in which you can present that. So what you have described is essentially a data-driven story. And what we have seen over the course of the last few years is a greater awareness amongst audiences and also amongst newsrooms of the way in which we can tell stories, not so much with words, but through graphics. So looking at, well, what does an infographic look like which tells this story? Or what does a piece of animation or a short piece of video look like which perhaps takes something that's very kind of statistically driven, very data driven, something that might appear quite dense to people in written form, but is arguably easier to understand if presented visually. And of course, that can be standalone or it can be wrapped around uh, around the written content. But I think it's recognizing that actually sometimes some of these nuances can be explained really simply. Like, you know, if you have a chart showing the deaths in two consecutive years next to one another, that nuance would immediately jump off the page at you in a way that in black and white is perhaps sometimes a little harder to grasp. Let's go the other way. What sort of steps should organizations avoid in situations like this? Um, that's a good question. I, I think perhaps uh, being too defensive. I think tone is, is important. I think treating the audience as being stupid is something that one should also try and avoid. And I think similarly despair. I mean, if you think about that, you know, there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom that is propagated around our industry. And once you start talking about things in in those particular terms, I think it risks becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think we have to recognize that digital gives us opportunities to tell stories in new and creative ways to reach out to audiences in a manner never previously possible. And it does mean that the old ways of doing things in many respects become redundant or just need to be changed up and and reinvigorated and reinvented. And and there are two ways of looking at that. You can either put your head in the sand and kind of wish things back to the way that they they were, which is never going to happen, or you can recognize this is an opportunity and therefore try and, and embrace that as enthusiastically as you can. I hope that those in this industry who are listening to this go back and listen to this whole interview twice because there's a lot to be gleaned from this, but you're never going to get it all one time through. And that's why we had Damian Radcliffe on. Thank you so much for your insight. This is fascinating, the way things are just so fickly managed and become big, and you just can't predict it. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. We've talked about breakdowns. Horses don't seem to break down as often in Japan, where so many notable runners came from one of the great sires of all time, Deep Impact. He passed away recently, but when we come back, we'll talk about his legacy of durable distance runners and what American breeders can learn from him. So don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. We've been talking about the perception, handling, and impact of the message regarding thoroughbred fatalities. But the question still remains, what's causing all of this in the first place? One theory is that the American thoroughbred is more delicate compared to other countries around the world, that Americans are built for speed, and speed also brings fragility, not durability. Underscoring that theory is the recent passing of one of the great sires in all of racing, the Japanese champion Deep Impact, who was 17 years old. Deep Impact has led all Japanese sires in progeny earnings every year since 2012, including 110 stakes winners. 
Deep Impact is a son of the American champion Sunday Silence. His glory days came in 1989, when major races were held two weeks apart, and it was hardly a consideration to skip a triple crown race for fear of over-racing a horse. Sunday Silence was sent to Japan to breed, and from him and his most successful son, Deep Impact, comes a large chunk of successful Japanese runners, including Gentle Donna, winner of the Dubai Shima Classic in 2014, and 2000 Guineas winner Saxon Warrior. In light of the deaths at Santa Anita this year, as well as the timely passing of Deep Impact on July 30th, it's appropriate for us to examine the differences in breeding between Japanese and European and American horses. And the BBC's Nancy Sexton wrote a column about that very topic on the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary website. And so we welcome Nancy Sexton here for the first time to In the Gate. You write about how the European and likely American horses are bred for the sales ring, but Japanese breeders are looking simply to breed the best athlete. Explain for our listeners what the difference is. With the sales ring, it's、uh, driven by fashion. You're basically you're, you're pandering to people's tastes. So they, you want sort of a, a horse that will most likely come to hand quicker. That, that's by a popular sire. And that might not be the most successful sire. You know, a lot of first season sires are popular because they've done nothing wrong yet. And everybody wants to be on the bandwagon. So you're just catering to taste. And it's very hard to predict the market and what it's going to be like. And, But it seems more and more they want to be quicker horses and they want to be sort of two year olds, especially in Europe. Love two year olds, I guess, because you, you, you get a sort of better return more quickly, especially with our, you know, we've got terrible prize money here. So there are some really good winner producing Stalins, older Stalins that probably fly under the radar a bit. They're just not attractive to the. The big hitters who want to be seen, I don't know, just spending on the new young thing. That's more or less sort of where I think both markets have, have headed. Well, what would it mean to breed the best athlete then? I'm trying, trying to think of a good example. With, with Stalins over here, certainly something a horse like Neuf, for example, would get very capable of getting good horses. But he's old. You know, if you tried to sell one, you might, you wouldn't get necessarily as much for it as something sort of a bit newer. So, the best athlete, yes, you'll be looking at the best cross, the best way of raising it, complementing sort of the, the sire and the dam together. But or getting all of that and then something that's available is very, very hard to do unless you're using Galloway or Dubawi or. Curling or tap it, you know, you need an awful lot of money to probably have all those stars aligned. Now, you would know this far better than I, but you write that mile and a half Group One winners or two mile winners aren't as desirable in European breeding than milers or sprinters.、Mm. I mean, there are quite a few top races in Europe of a mile and a half or two miles in length. I mean, people have thrown rose petals at Stradivarius lately for winning his third straight Goodwood Cup at two miles and his second straight Ascot Gold Cup at two and a half miles. So, why would horses like this not be as sought after at stud than shorter distance horses? They would,、um, they take longer to, to come to hand. So if you're spending sort of X amount on, on training fees per day and vets, you're going to have to wait 
probably two or three years for that horse to reach its full potential. People don't have that kind of patience anymore. Um, it's And it's a similar thing in America. I mean, in Europe, it's a lot worse because of the prize money situation, to my eye. We're selling a lot of our horses abroad for astronomical sums because the math just doesn't work out keeping them in Europe. But a horse like Stradivarius, sadly, if he goes to stud, he's going to struggle. Is he, he'll probably be a jump stallion. But the jumps boys will look at him and say he's too small and he's chestnut. So it's very sad the way it's, it's developed. Crystallation would be a similar type of horse. You know, they, they are just going to be hard sales when they go to stud. On the other hand, you get a group three winning two-year-old and people will fall all over themselves to use it. And what I found so refreshing about Japan is that this doesn't happen. They have to have run two, three, four seasons. Some of their best races are sort of over two miles. And the fans really get behind them and then they enjoy using them, the breeders, when they go to stud. What makes their mindset different? Well, they're not breeding so much for the sale ring, I guess. I mean, our sale companies, for instance, would much rather take a Kodiak or take 40 Kodiaks to a sale than 40 by a mile and a half horse just because they know they're going to sell better. And then on top of that, that so if you can get it into a sale, that sort of drives breeder behavior and agent behavior. And I'd say that the fan behavior as well. I mean, it's just such a huge sport in Japan, isn't it? The amount of press and the, the support it gets the sport gets from the fans because these horses last longer. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's sort of sale ring behavior probably is more is to sort of driving all this at the moment. We're talking with Nancy Sexton of the BBC here on In the Gate. Now you started to allude to this, and in your online article, you write of two other factors that influence Japanese breeding. So let's take them one at a time: wealth. In the first half of the 20th century here in the United States, racing was dominated by big families and big operations which bred to race, not to sell, like the Whitney's and the Vanderbilt's and the Phipps's and Calumet Farmers examples. So you started to allude to it, but how does the Japanese scene compare right now? Well, it's dominated by Northern Farm and Shadai Farm. So it's dominated by the Yoshida family. You know, they, they imported Sunday Silence and now the three brothers that are driving the whole sport out there. I think Shaddai would have, I saw that, I was lucky enough to see the pre-breaking yard over there and they would have something like 600 horses go through that system every year. And then Northern Farm had 800. So, I mean, they're the big family in in Japan and everybody's sort of trying to, behind them they would be, trying to keep up with them or use use their horses. It's, I know it's very hard for foreign investors to get a license to race. But you know, we, I think a lot of our issues, certainly in, in Europe and, and in America now with racing, is the lack of these owner breeders, these big owner breeder families understand the game, understand giving people, um, giving horses patience, listening to their trainers. And um, certainly over here, we we have very few, you know, Bjorn Nelson would be a, who owns Stradivarius, he would certainly be an owner breeder that would be fit into that ilk. Um, and of course, we're very lucky to have the Matt Toom family and the Queen. She's 
she's a massive cog in our in our industry. Probably people like Charlotte Weber in um, America and the Phipps family and Claiborne and you know they're still around. Great to see Peter Brandt come back, but it is certainly a worry. You know when you're looking for the next owner breeder that would be able to give these horses time and enjoy the sport for what it is, rather than making a quick buck. When you talk about the mindset of a culture that wants to see older horses race, are we talking about the owner breeders? Are we talking about the fans, the betters? Are they putting pressure, or not? Or as it is not putting pressure, saying we want to see records set, we want to see track records fall and faster horses? Like, where is the mindset and who is driving that mindset? I think it is a fusion between the fans and the breeders. I mean, as we know, the fan base is huge and they do want to see these horses run. I mean, going to the Tokyo race course, it was a real eye-opener because it was packed. But I remember walking past the room that said beginner seminar and there were about 50 people in there learning all about racing. They just turned up and they wanted to learn about it. So there is that. And um, I suspect there's Stalin masters and particularly the Yoshidas and they're probably very appreciative of um, that particular fact. And they're, they're standing stallions that they do want to see compete over a range of distance distances and over a series of seasons. I mean, a horse like Kitasan Black, you know, he, he, he won over, he won the Japanese the Japan Cup, the Tenno Show. They're, they're, I mean, they ranged from 2,000 metres to 3,000 metres, his best performances. So it's, I think fans all over the world want to see horses run longer if they can. And of course, the Japanese thoroughbred is at the moment a very tough beast, certainly tougher than, say, a European animal or the American, North American animal, perhaps. Maybe it's lack of drugs. I, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, there are a myriad of factors. Where do you see this trend in Japanese breeding and racing going in the coming years in terms of sturdiness versus speed and things like that? It's very interesting because they've been bringing in faster horses like Drefong, Mind Your Biscuits. They've got an awful lot of Sunday Silence blood and then, you know, the, out, the need for an outcross is quite urgent. Whether this works and these horses are successful out in Japan. I mean, we'll, you know, who knows, but they've been given every possible chance at the moment. I can't see it sort of swinging around too much away from those mile and a half, two mile horses, mainly because those big races, all the fans enjoy, are over those extended distances. I mean, the typical Japanese horse seems to be a sort of resolute galloper with a really good finishing kick, you know, whereas Probably, you know, the, the American, more American type is a sort of a early speed grinder. But it is interesting how they are, you know, the market is starting to absorb a bit more speed now. I mean, the first crop of Dreyfong, they're very, it's very well received in Japan recently at the select sale. And I can't imagine, had he stayed in America, that it would be anywhere close to the popularity that he's, he is right now. So I, I can't see it changing that much but i can see them becoming more open to you know different blood and different 
types of horses, for sure. Just to stop him breeding to Sunday silence all the time, which is what they're having to do now. Um, you see a lot of, I think, eight, about 80 horses in select cell are inbred to him. And he's everywhere, you know. It's a bit like Sadler's Wells and Galileo and Danehill in Europe. It's very, the gene pools become that bit more constricted. Certainly something for our American breeders and fans to uh, chew on a little bit. Thank you so much for that perspective, Miss Sexton. A lot to get out of this. Thank you. Take care. Our thanks to Nancy Sexton and Damian Radcliffe. Horse racing is the sport of kings, as everybody knows, a passion once only for the well-heeled. But lately, we've seen wrinkles designed to help the everyman to get more players on the playing field. We've seen the rise of racing clubs, where for a few hundred dollars, you're effectively the owner of a horse. Some races are for trainers who stable 20 head or fewer, so they're not lopsided battles of resource. Now, New York's run some races for two-year-olds who've gone to auction and whose selling price is 45 grand or less. We've seen, of course, some low-priced bombs take out their regal opponents, but I'm glad the cost disparity is being addressed. I cannot prove it, but I think American Pharaoh's Triple Crown is a main reason these things have come to be. He motivated people to get involved in horse racing and added footnote to his lasting legacy. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.